and get started. If you can get settled in your seats, please. We all set. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Alexa Uda, and I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, we're very happy to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival. You are here at the panel, Lessons from Urban Public Ed. We've got some great superintendents up here to talk to us. Before I get to introducing them, just a couple of quick housekeeping things. Uh, this panel is supported by Raise Your Hand Texas. Though sponsors and donors underwrite this event, they play no role in determining the content, panelists, or the line of questioning. Um, I, we're working with about 60 minutes. We're running a little behind. Uh, we'll try to do 40 to 45 minutes of discussion up here and open it up to 15 to 20 to Q&A. We've got a mic here and a mic up there. So once we get to that point, um, if you'll line up there and we'll get going. Um, so if you are, do have a phone on, please silence that. If you're going to tweet, which we welcome, the hashtag is TTF. Let's get started. Um, I'm gonna introduce our panelists here. To my right, we have Superintendent Pedro Martinez. He is the superintendent of San Antonio ISD, a position he was named to in 2015. He was the former superintendent in residence for the Nevada Department of Education, former chief financial officer at Chicago Public Schools. Next to him, we have uh, Michael Hinojosa. He is the superintendent of Dallas ISD, position he was named to in 2015. He's got 20 years of experience as superintendent or CEO of six public education systems, including the Cobb County School District in Atlanta, Georgia. Next, we have uh, Superintendent Juan Cabrera. He is the superintendent of El Paso ISD since 2013. He previously worked as a school law attorney and is a certified K through eight bilingual teacher. Next, we have uh, Superintendent Richard Carranza. He is the superintendent of Houston ISD, a position he was named to in August. Uh, he's a former superintendent of the San Francisco USD and a former high school teacher in Tucson and Las Vegas. And last but not least, we have uh, Paul Cruz. He is the superintendent of Austin ISD. He was named in 2015 as, after serving as interim superintendent. He's a former chief schools officer for Austin ISD and he was the former deputy commissioner for dropout prevention at the Texas Education Agency. Thanks so much for being here with us. You know, as we, the, the title of this panel is, is Lessons from Urban Public Ed. And when I was looking at the, the student population of our urban districts, what easily stood out is how different they are, not just from the state overall, public schools in the state, but Texas. So just to lay out uh, for, for our panel, for our public, you know, Texas is 39% Hispanic, but if you look at school districts, they are 52% Hispanic. If you look at these folks' school districts, it's all of your school districts are 60% Hispanic. I think HISD has got 62, Dallas ISD 70%. And, and just to show you the contracts, Texas is 43% white. But if you look at schools in Texas, that number drops to 28.9. If you look at these school districts, we're working with very low numbers in San Antonio and El Paso. And in HISD and DISD, we've got 8.3% and 4.8%. So clearly, the schools that you are, not only the schools in Texas, but the schools that you're overseeing are completely different from the state. Knowing that, because it's so starkly different, is your approach different in the urban school districts when comparing yourselves to suburban or rural or even just the state overall? So, so I'll, I can start with that because in our city, we're unique that 
we're one of many districts within our county, and we have two larger suburban districts that have a median income that's double, more than double what ours is. Our median income in our district is about $30,000. We're 91% Latino um, and 93% free and reduced lunch. Uh, there's one district in Texas that is higher than us, and that's Brownsville in terms of large districts. And the work, the, the way we're approaching the work is we have, uh, with such a large number of children living in poverty, um, we feel that we need to go that extra step, especially when we're talking about not only graduation. So last year we had a record graduation rate. Right now we're looking at about 85%, and we're very proud of that. But what we're seeing, and, and for us it's a symptom of what we see statewide, is we see too many of our children not going to college, uh, undermatched when it comes to the universities that they're attending. And so for us, you know, last year we, we started a big effort to start changing that, and we saw some promising results. We increased the number of students going to tier one universities from 2% just two years before to now over 5% of our graduating class. And that's a good start, and we put a 10% goal uh, out there. But one of the things we're learning in that is that we have to outreach the parents. Uh, for example, I had a record number of students accepted by UT Austin, um, and I had to go out and actually talk to the parents firsthand to explain to them the difference of UT Austin, no disrespect to UTSA, and the difference of going to a tier one university and the kind of doors that open up for their children. And I think in middle class communities and suburban communities, that's ha that happens at home. And what we realize in our district, we have to go that, that extra step. A couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, things have continued to change drastically, but we don't apologize for our demographics. We're proud of our students. We, we know they can be successful, but we have to have the right kind of goals. But you got to understand your population so you know what impacts um, everything else. For example, very specific, Dallas is 72% uh, Latino. It is, when I was hired the first time in Dallas in 2005, we were, we were at 70% economically disadvantaged. Now we're at 90% economically disadvantaged. When I was hired in 05, the first time, we had 30% English learners. Today, we have 42% English learners. El Paso has 29% English learners. San, San Antonio has 19% English learners. So when you t look at Texas, the state bird of Texas is the construction crane. And that's where all these parents, our parents are working on those construction cranes. So you have to understand, if you're going to move the needle for your kids, you have to know who they are and what resources to get to them. We have a very robust uh, dual language program, so they can become literate in two languages academically. Um, and, and so there, those are the things that you watch, and you got to know your levers. You have to be a champion for your students, and you don't want to apologize for your uh, demographics ever. We're very proud of our kids and our families, and they work very hard. And then you have to understand a lot of other different nuances and making sure that uh, the best, you know, a lot of people complain about um, No Child Left Behind, but I think the best thing that it ever did um, uh, is we went overboard on testing, but, but the best thing that it ever did is you can't hide in the aggregate performance of your students. You're held accountable for every student group, so you can't hide with some of your students not doing well. And so uh, I would just say that that's, that's been a huge difference. The last thing I'll say, and I'll turn it over to the other panelists, is that you also have to think about your parents. And I've been a suburban superintendent three times and an urban superintendent twice. Suburban parents think about, here's where my kid goes to elementary. I want them to go to this middle school, and I want them to go to this high school. And I know I was that parent. Urban parents are looking for the best opportunity anywhere. And so they sit here, and then what is my, my next best option? Because they have a lot of choices, whether um, um, it's charter schools, private schools, home schools. And so as a 
as an urban superintendent, you have to provide opportunities. Public school choice for us means have many opportunities for our students so they can stay in our system and not go elsewhere. So that's something that I have learned over time sitting in both chairs as suburban and urban superintendent. Yeah, I think uh, we certainly have different issues in the urban school districts when you compare suburbans. Everybody in Texas that sits at this table has a, has a round rock or you know, you've got uh, Northside, uh, Northside and, and I've got, you've got Frisco and these other districts. We've got Socorro and El Paso. By definition, if a family can move to those areas, they're probably better off than most of our families. So that's where you begin. And if you've got an educated parent, it certainly is, is an advantage for a child. But as Dr. Hinojosa said, we don't make any excuses. We have to, we're there because we want to serve that population. We want to make sure that every child there has every opportunity that the suburban child has. But we do have to to make special allowances or account for the fact that many of our kids will come from homes that potentially don't have an educated parent, poverty, language issues. So we have to be really strong with that. We're collectively, Dr. Hinojosa has recently led an effort to get all of us together on the Texas Urban Council. So we're meeting a few times a year to talk about the issues we share, make sure we go to the legislature together. We've lost our agency in the urban centers. As the suburbs have grown the, and, and we've had redistricting, you've got more power in the suburbs in the Senate and the House so for us, we've lost agency, and together, collectively, we serve the nine largest, uh, what we call the legacy urbans, the El Pasos, San Antonio, Corpus, Houston. We have about 900,000 kids, and there's five million kids in Texas. So if we get together, try to go to the legislature and talk about the issues that we need and the special attention that we need for some particular issues that we're solving, we're certain that we can solve the problems, but we, we do approach it differently than the suburbs do, mm -hmm. certainly. <clears throat> Very similar to what everybody has shared, I think, for us, the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that we serve the students that we have, not the students that we wish we had or we used to have or some people would say, oh, the good old days. Well, the good old days were never really that good. Um, so for us, how do we meet the needs of students that are currently sitting in our seats for us becomes of paramount importance. And that means that we diversify the, the curriculum. You know, if you have a choice system, yet you have families living in the urban center that don't have modes of transportation, then do they really have choice? So for us to be able to provide the, the wraparound services, because you know we have, we have students, regardless of ethnic diversity, we have students that are dealing with issues of poverty, issues of homelessness, issues of violence in the community. So for us as school districts in an urban center, how we provide the wraparound services so that we're not lowering academic bars, but we're providing wraparound services to help students meet our academic bar uh, for us becomes tantamount to the work that we do. However, the, the perverse nature of what we're talking about is that uh, we're not funded adequately to be able to provide all of those resources. And, and I know that, you know, this is my 27th year in education and folks have always said, well, you just can't throw money at it. I just wish one of those 27 years somebody would throw money at it because we know that we can actually, <laughs> we can actually make a difference. And if you don't believe me, I think sure. when we stop looking at public education as an expense, a line item expense, and actually start talking about it as an investment in the future of Texas, we can actually move the needle. And you either pay now or you're gonna pay a lot later. Right now, state of Texas, per pupil expenditure, about $59.95 per student. $59.95 per student. The cost to incarcerate a juvenile in the state of Texas, $134,000 a year. So you either pay now or you pay later. And right now, we're, we're not paying what we need to educate students at a high degree. And it's especially pronounced in large urban centers. You've, you've got lots of suburbs around you. What's it like for you and, and here in Austin? 
Okay. Well, I was ready to answer the same question, but I guess I'm going to, I may and be like I same, did in middle in school. Um, I have an answer in my head. I'm just going to wait for that question to come back around, right? So it, it may be like that, but I'm going to make it fit. That's what I um, Absolutely. I think it's Stick with my answer. And, and also, <laughs> yeah, the truth be told, right? But I think in, in, in urban school systems with suburban communities, so I, I will respond to the question. Uh, and I've worked in both urban, suburban districts. I've worked in districts around the, right at the border of you know Mexico. And I think that with an urban school system and you look at choice and opportunity, I think that is important that in urbans we offer an array of choices and opportunities. So I, we, many times we talk about school choice. I love it. I believe in that. I believe in that as an educator. I believe in that as a teacher, as a superintendent, and also as a parent. So for us, it's about trying to find out what parents want, what they need, uh, for, our, for our kids and providing those opportunities uh, in advanced academics, in areas of some of the areas of giftedness, in fine arts, in social emotional learning, in uh, you know, just a myriad of different opportunities. But I think that is important because I also think with, and now here comes a tie into the, to the previous question, when we look at results and you look at you know, 20 years back and you look at percentage of students who have graduated from high school and are Latinos or minority students, or you look at who has an advanced degree and who doesn't, well, we can change that, and the way we can change that is with the kids we have in our schools today. So it is about really ramping up and making sure that we're providing all of our kids with strong academics in a, in a supportive environment so the kids will learn and thrive. And I just think that that's the way to change it if we don't want to sit here again 20 years later and say, well, look at the dropout rate, look at the graduation rate among minority kids, and look at the number of students who have actually finished high school and gone on to college and look at that minority rate. We want to change that, but the kids are right now with us today. And I think that's how we have to approach it is really ramp up and make sure we're, we're making these very intentional efforts to change that, to change those outcomes. Well, you know, something that I think almost each of you mentioned is the economically disadvantaged students that, that you're working with. And, you know, the, the state overall is about 58.8% economically disadvantaged, but your school districts, again, Houston ISD 75, Dallas ISD 85, San Antonio 91. You, in terms of student equity and the barriers that we know poverty can play in that, what are the biggest gaps that you might see and, and how do you even bridge that gap? So, so I think first of all, we need to also get a lot more sophisticated about poverty itself because you know, even the economic disadvantage, we're measuring it based on free and reduced lunch for the most part, which in my thing is a very antiquated measure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can have a family, if it's, they're large enough, they can make at the national median income of $60,000 and qualify for FRL. It might be reduced, might not be free. Uh, in our district, um, all of us, the children are all free, <laughs> literally. And I've never been in a district like this. And what's interesting is, you know, we looked at median income by block based on census data, but we took all 53,000 of our children and literally said, we need to understand this in such a way, not to make excuses, because we have to embrace our children, but we need to understand it. And we found schools that had a median income of under $20,000. Wow. And what was interesting, we didn't see a correlation of low performing schools with the higher poverty uh, you know, in that area. So for us, we found schools that had median incomes of under 20,000 outperforming schools that were more than double that, that average. And so for us, so one is an understanding. The other though, um, I think is when you have a high poverty district and you have suburban districts, you also have a challenge with, with attracting talented teachers and keeping talented teachers. Because the reality, and I say this to our staff, if you're gonna come to our district, you have to be ready to, to accept and embrace the fact that children are gonna come in with different needs. 
Uh, we're going to have uh, children with different languages. You're going to have children that are below grade level. You're going to have children that might not have had access to quality preschool programs. Uh, our mobility rate on some schools is up to 50%, where half the children that our teachers start with, they, uh, it's a different uh, half that they end with. So for us, we have to understand those components. And frankly, we have to be very thoughtful about onboarding our teachers. One of the biggest challenges we have is that when uh, in our lowest performing schools, the majority of our teachers are first through third year teachers. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's a struggle for us. And so now we're looking at, okay, so how do we, and we, by the way, in the state of Texas, there's a teacher shortage. So 60%, 6 of our teachers are alternatively certified. So, so that creates two unintended consequences. One is you can't hold schools of ed you know, accountable because we gotta hire whatever they produce. And you have so many different alternative certification programs, they vary in quality. So who gets the brunt of that? It's urban districts. So for us, we have now put a, such a strong focus now on, on human capital, and frankly, even starting to develop our own teachers, we're creating residence schools in our district just out of, for survival, because we can't depend on the system itself right now to give us the quality that we need. You hit on something very important, and that's one of the reasons that we coalesce as urban superintendents. Because when you talk to our suburban superintendent brethren, they say, yeah, we're 70% economically disadvantaged. But there's a difference between economically disadvantaged and abject and generational poverty. All of us yeah. uh, have abject and generational poverty, where you look at the kids and what the income of their families, it's completely different than barely being economically disadvantaged in some of the inner ring suburbs that our brethren talk about all the time. So that is our reality. So what do you do? So at Dallas, we're doing three things that we're very proud of. We really focus on early, uh, early matters, um, pre-K. We think that's a, the best long-term strategy. Um, but the return on investment on that is a long time uh, when those kids get to third grade to test or when they get to high school when they graduate. But our business community, and we've applied for a grant from the state, and we got it, and we're pushing forward, and we have a very aggressive, we now have 11,000 pre-K uh, pre kids in our school system. And so that was up from 7,000 a few years ago. So that's one strategy, but the return on that investment's way down the road. We gotta do something with the kids we have now. We have people in this room that are helping us with um, pathways to technology. We have a very aggressive uh, uh, collegiate academy program where we're taking our kids can get out of high school with an associate's degree in applied sciences and they can get real wage jobs. And we have industry partners that are helping us with that. And the third thing we're doing is the human capital piece. Now, uh, we can't, if I go and assign my best teachers to my toughest schools, they're going to go to Garland, they're going to go to Grand Prairie, they're going to go to Fort Worth. But if we incentivize those teachers, and we had an, uh, an initiative this past year, and we paid them a lot of money, and they went together as a team, and they made a big difference. Uh, and it took away all the excuses, because when I go to schools every Wednesday, I look at the data before I walk into the building, and I, you know, I'm already thinking if, if a parent or a principal is going to tell me, well, I don't know, but I've got a school right down the street that looks just like you and they're doing it. So we've got to take those excuses away, but we've got to give them the tools to be successful. And, it's going, and there's not one silver bullet. All of these things work together, and you have to know what's going to work in your community. And, and it's a challenge, but it's a lot of fun. So, you know, I think one of the, the areas we all share in common in the poverty, irrespective of the race of the child, is what you're going to find more often than not is there's not as much education in the home, so the kids come to us with le fewer, fewer vocabulary, right? Less <coughs> vocabulary, less expansive vocabulary. So literacy is really critical. Early education is important. In the last couple of years, we've added 1,800 kids to our cohort of pre-K kids just by partnering with daycares and other entities 
and making sure we're recruiting. And for about 600 of those kids, we're paying for them out of our pocket. The state didn't give us money for them, but we're doing it just because we think it's that important. Uh, but I'm also taking a unique approach. I had the luxury of, you know, I lived in Austin. My kids went to Ean schools, Lake Travis schools. They've been to private schools when I lived abroad. So I've seen what a holistic, wealthy education can provide. And we're trying to do that in El Paso. So we will be the largest uh, supporter of UTech network schools in the country uh, this year. We have, we went from one IB campus to five campuses. We're going, uh, we're going to try to do project-based learning across the, the, the entire district. So, so here's what I'm thinking about this holistic learning approach. While my kids were in GT in these wealthier schools, they had almost like Socratic <coughs> seminars, no rote memorization, student-centered discussion, teachers and facilitators are talking 20% of the time, not 90% of the time. What we typically do, we get in these situations of poverty, lack of education, Juanita or Juanita can't read, so we just kill them with academic standards. And I don't deny we need that, we have to do that, but we're trying to do a bifurcated approach focusing on literacy early, making sure they get there as soon as we can. If we get them on grade level, we want to start switching to a holistic education, a more Socratic seminar, discussion-based, teach them how to collaborate with their peers, problem solve, creative think. We believe that the social-emotional learning is what really is going to help our kids out of poverty. It's those social skills that they may not learn because their parents aren't educated, the ability to, to interact with others, collaborate with others, find their voice and find what their real passion is. So we're focused on this holistic, uh, social and emotional, project-based learning education while aggressively working on literacy. But we have to get our <coughs> kids there because too many times we focus only on literacy and numeracy for our kids of poverty and we never give them a more expansive education. I think we really stunt their potential to learn and find their true voice. Yeah. You're so just starting in Houston. What are you seeing so far? We got it all figured out. <laughs> 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 so, you know, seriously, I think let me come at this question from a, from a different perspective. So first and foremost, I think regardless of what poverty is and what it looks like in our communities, we are all working exceedingly hard at ameliorating those impacts when they walk through our schoolhouse door. Uh, for us, that means partnering with our municipalities, per, uh, partnering with our community-based organizations, being able to find the wraparound service partners so that we're able to connect families to the services they need. So when they come to school, they're, the students are able to feel comfortable, they're able to learn, right? Maslow's hierarchy says you have to feel comfortable, safe, and secure to be, before you can ever start learning. That being said, um, I actually took a different approach and I actually followed a sixth grade student for her entire schedule one day. And this was not in Houston, it was in my previous school district. But started the day with her, rode the bus with her, went to every single class, sat through the class, went to lunch the whole day. I'm not sure I would want to stay in school. It was a lot of sit, it was a lot of get, it was a lot of look in your book. Even the, even the passing periods and the bells that were ringing has nothing to do with the way I learn. And, and you know, I'm 49, almost 50 years old. It, it was brutal, it was a brutal day. Yet when we have students of poverty who, when you look at the data, um, disproportionately, are lower achieving in some of the indicators that we have in our assessments, what we, we tend to think the formula is you give them more of that. So you double their English class, you double their math class, and you cut out the very things that make school worth reading and writing yeah. about. The fine arts, the electives, and the, the college-bound classes that connect with other, uh, other, other modalities of learning. So I think that what we collectively are trying to do, and you've heard some of this here about how we have linked learning and we have different academies, is to really differentiate the learning experience for a student 
because it's not the didactics that you get that you know we may have had. Uh, and I would I would challenge folks if you're able to follow a student for their entire school day, and then ask yourself the question: Would you like to have a full school year of that? Uh, I I think many of us would say that's not okay. I won't change the question. Okay, you. well, yeah. <laughs> it's like you're keeping me on my toes. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. time I didn't prepare, but no. So anyway, but I agree with my colleagues. I mean, the challenges there with students of poverty, and so I agree with what we're talking about, particularly when we talk about stronger academics. We're having more kids earn more college credit. So we have opened up early college high schools. We're looking at opening a P-Tech Academy so that every student graduates high school with some college credit. I'll also maybe just sort of add then on the, in, a, in an urban school setting, sometimes you deal and talk with parents and deal with parents in a very middle, middle class way through either email or listservs or things like that or come to you know family night or whatever. Um, and yet it's not engaging for the parents either. And then we'll typically do it perhaps in a language that is not what the parent uh, requests or wants or prefers or understands. So I remember one time at a school, well, we were looking at a different academic design. So this was something pretty heavy, right? When you're changing the academic design for early college high school, it was that. And, I, and I'm fluent in English and Spanish. Well, I put on the headsets because we'd done the headset deal, right? Well, um, I'd listened to the uh, information and then I noticed that there was, uh, all the slides were in English. The presenter was speaking English. Yes, the translator was doing it in Spanish, but it was uh, very, um, you know, filtered. And I knew the content, and I wasn't grasping the essence of what we were talking about. And I just walked away thinking, this is why parents aren't coming together. They don't understand what we're trying to do, and some were against it. Mm -hmm. So then we've changed that. And in fact, so, so much so that we always, when we have information sessions for parents, uh, we always have English and Spanish slides, all, every, all the and also in Vietnamese. If we have with one of our communities, it's, it's Vietnamese. Everything will be in a bilingual situation. Uh, we'll invite parents to, if they choose English, they'll go to the English session. If they want Spanish, they'll go to the Spanish session. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a session where pretty much it was all um, Spanish. And so we actually switched it. And so there were about 50 parents there. So they were fluent in Spanish um, and they preferred Spanish. And there were maybe five people who preferred English. So we actually had the folks who were speaking English, they put on the headsets uh, and we did it all in Spanish. And it was a great opportunity just to, for people just to understand. Because many times, and what I, what I don't like, and I do think is just outright wrong, is many times people will say, see, they don't care. They don't show. Well, guess what? They do care, and they do show. But if they can't contribute, then we're not providing that opportunity for them. And sometimes people walk away very misinformed that people don't care, and they absolutely do. But the way we engage kids is also the way we need to engage parents as well. You know, so you, you've talked about your goals and, and initiatives and challenges and obviously have mentioned money and funding for all of that. Uh, we'll, we'll start backwards this time so you won't be last on this one. Equity. I know when we, when we spoke before this panel, you, you mentioned Austin being considered a property wealthy district and, and the disconnect between that and, and your actual students. And so I guess I'm curious, do, do each of you think that the state school finance system works? Is it broken? I know, well, really I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to start on that one. <laughs> I have a stock amp and I have slides too, believe it, it's also on our website. So we are 60% poverty, 
we have a little over 83,000 students. 75% um, of our students are minority students, and we're considered property wealthy. So this year, we are set to get to send to the, to the state under the recapture system $406 million. So, and also here in Central Texas, there are four districts that make up about 28% of all recaptures. So it's Austin ISD with 60% 60, 60 poverty, um, Georgetown, Lake Travis, and Eanes. So it's a lot of money, and we are, Austin is the highest payer into recapture. Well, we also have students who, uh, that campuses that have 90% poverty or more. So, and we're also talking about generational poverty. We're also talking about English language learners. Uh, 20, 22,000 students are English language learners. Some of our kids, as an urban school system, um, and we have actually have invested full day kindergarten. The state doesn't pay for it for a full day, but we do, because we think it's important to provide full day pre-K. We've actually moved into also offering a full day, I'm sorry, not full day, but pre-K three-year-old programs at selected schools. So we actually build vocabulary, but all that takes resources. It takes money to do that. We know we can continue to improve our graduation rate, which is also at an all-time high at 89.7%. So we're very proud, and all of our student groups at 80% or better. But nonetheless, it's still, you still need more resources and support because many of our kids enter school sideways. So they're gonna enter as, I have, I'll have 300, over 300 students at our international high school, students who know content in their native language, but not in English. And yet they need to demonstrate proficiency in algebra, in you know, <coughs> calculus, but in their own, in, in English. And so cognitively they know it, but they can't demonstrate it in English. All that to say again, those take, that takes additional support and resources. You know, we have that here, but it doesn't stay here in Austin. And so that's where I see within funding systems where we don't get funding as a property wealthy district, we do not get funding for full day pre-K. We also pay into social security at $33 million a year, get no credit for that. We get $0 for transportation. Anybody who lives in Austin, it, it takes, you need something, right, to get around the city, right? So, and, and that brings nothing, right? Not even that, right? No Uber. You know, and so none of that money is actually to yeah. stay here. And we actually provide for transportation. That's $28 million a year for us, where we provide transportation for our kids to, to actually go to school. And that's just an essential, you know, opportunity here. But then when we don't get the funding support for it, or even to acknowledge that it's property wealthy, just get credit for that, that money doesn't stay here. Geez, Paul, drop the mic. Yeah, right? <laughs> Orale, it's on now, right? No, no, no. That was, that was a good one. <laughs> I mean, so many things to talk about in so little time. I, similarly to Austin, we love our Austin brothers and sisters, but we don't want to be in that club. But we've just been invited to be in that yeah. club in, in Houston ISD. Right. And I'll tell you, eight, over 82% free and reduced lunch uh, qualification in Houston, we think if everybody actually filled out the form, we'd be closer to the 90% mark. Uh, we have communities that, uh, sub-communities in Houston that don't even have sidewalks. I mean, we're talking about abject poverty. We're talking about incredible challenges of living in a large urban system, which Paul has very articulately talked about. Yet, we're supposed to send back $162 million in this February uh, to, to Austin. This, the following year, it's gonna be close to 300 million, and the following year, close to 400 million. It keeps on skyrocketing for us. So a billion dollars over three years going back to fund a school finance system, which the legislature needs to fix. They need to fix. And if you look at what happens with recapture and school finance, you have two pots of money. You have the general fund and you have the recapture fund. Uh, so as we're in Austin right now is contributing to that recapture fund, it's offsetting what the legislature allocates for education in, in Texas. So 
in essence, it's a secondary fund, it's a secondary tax. Uh, and the perverse nature of that is that as it becomes increasingly difficult to educate in an urban system, uh, we have less and less resources. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a huge challenge for us. I mean, what do I know? I've been on the job for 10 days, right? But I know what I know. Yeah. And, and I can tell you that, you know, even, even the way we're being asked to identify student proficiency. You know, when I was named loan, loan finalist in Houston, I received no less than 14 emails from realtors telling me they're gonna help me move to Houston. Not one of those 14 did I ever hire because every single one of those 14 in somewhere in their email said, we will help you find a neighborhood next to a good school. Really? How do you identify a good school? Do you identify a good school where everybody's monolithically wealthy or at least middle class with a nuclear family and everybody's knocking it out of the park on the standardized test? Or do you find a good school, the school that takes kids that come from poverty, kids that take, come from, from violence, and take them and nurture them and keep them safe and they come to school and you move them instead of one grade level per year of instruction, two or three grade levels per year of instruction, and you help them be fed and you help them stay positive and you help them keep from joining gangs and you help them be part of an extracurricular activity. I don't know about you, but that's a school that I consider a really good school. So, I, I think there is a pernicious and pervasive formula that is going to serve to perpetuate a, a persistent underclass in the state of Texas. And I don't think that's what the intent was of the legislature when they first envisioned this funding formula. But I think there is an opportunity now with the legislature coming back into session to really call the question. I mean, the bad news is that we have a broken school finance system. That's the bad news. The good news is that everyone here is a voter. Everyone here is a voter. And everyone here can exude influence around fix it. We're not saying throw billions of dollars in it because we know it's not gonna happen, but fix it. So you're not raiding Austin who needs that resource to keep their teachers employed, to keep their students safe, to put programs in place so we don't create the next generation of impoverished students, intergenerational poverty that Michael talked about. So is it, is it a, is it a well-functioning system? No. Should it be fixed? Yes. See, that well, deserves a mic drop too, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, we're gonna break every mic in the room, I guess, right? That's good. Well, we, we, you know, we can, uh, <laughs> so these, uh, Austin's in, Houston's in, I think Dallas is getting close to being in, right? Pedro and I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of being a recapture district, so we will, we, we will have to take a different position. The bottom line is I've lived in Lake Travis, I've lived in Eanes, and I've also taught in Edgewood ISD, my first year teaching, so I am a fan of recapture. Whether it hurts these guys or not, the reality is that we need to put the pressure back on the legislature to fix it, so we, we have to take care of these property poor districts. They are very difficult. I know all these districts very well. I've spent time at all their schools, so and I'm not saying you don't have the need. You certainly have schools that are every bit as needy as ours, but it is different in places like El Paso or the core of San Antonio, if you spent time there recently. So the issue is not us pitted against each other, but as you said, it is a truly an additional revenue stream. It's the legislature kicking the can down the road, using recapture as a way to fund education because they don't want to deal with the fact we have a property poor school system in, in a lot of our cities. And you know, I think the pressure is, is incumbent upon you to you know, fix it. Either way, we got to take care of our property poor schools. We got to take care of our abject poverty and, and some of these cities, I mean, El Paso will never have the wealth of a Dallas, Houston, or, or, uh, or Austin, so we have to make sure that we don't leave them isolated or the inner core of San Antonio. Certainly a problem, a debate that we shouldn't have here. We're not <laughs> gonna solve it. 
Uh, the thing I would add is because I've been, because unlike my brethren here, they they know how to keep a job. I know how to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> so I, since I've gotten several jobs, I've been both on both sides of recapture. And so I can tell I can tell you the other side of the story because I've lived their lives and I'm going to live their lives. But the truth is really a, a bigger problem because. Some would, some would say that Austin's getting more they're entitled to, and then if you're in El Paso, you, you should be getting more. So, I mean, that argument's never going to go away, but here's the problem. The real issue is that the state is using that as a revenue source, right. and it's not going back to all school districts. The right. state is keeping that in their general yeah. fund. The other big issue is, as we move forward, is that, you know, I even try to get, raise more revenue for my district, and I failed I'm, I'm disappointed in myself that I couldn't get my trustees to ask our community to give us more money for our initiatives. I'm a failure. So I, I, I hate that, but that system requires a supermajority of my board to do that. And then on top of that, this legislature now is talking about giving public funds to non-public schools. And that's going to be a huge initiative. So not, it's not only get, not taking care of recapture, it's getting worse. And so, and on top of that, the only time, and I've been a superintendent for 22 years and most of those in Texas, the only time I've been through every lawsuit since 1984 against the state. I've testified in almost all of them. And the only time the legislature ever did anything is when they had a gun to their head. And now the courts have said this is constitutional, so they don't have to do anything. So, vaya con Dios. <laughs> I was waiting for the answer. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just add that, um, I'll, I'll just add to my colleagues that, you know, I'm, I've been here a year here in, in Texas, and one of the disappointments that I've had is the fact that Texas has the strong, one of the strongest economies, most diverse economies in the country. I'm not saying California has it all right, but I will tell you, California, who's, you know, the, one of the, you know, similar large state, um, I mean, they have some of the highest income taxes in the country, and then they tax themselves again to raise a billion dollars with a B for education. And again, I don't, I'm not saying they had it all right, but then I come to, a, to our state where in the last session, they had several billions of dollars where they really, they didn't even allocate. I mean, they have a $100 billion budget and they left, you know, five, six billion dollars on the table. And I said, my goodness, who does that? When our district spending is, or our, our education spending is below the national average. And we have one of the highest poverty rates in the country, the fastest growing poverty rates in the country. And so for us, and we're becoming the demographics of the country. And so for me, you know, when I saw that, and then the other thing I would just add is that many of our, so we're all funded on formulas, right? So, so even when property wealth goes up in El Paso or San Antonio, we get reduced by the state. So it's not a special tax that we yeah. capture, but we just get reduced. And what I have to explain to our community, because we're in the process of doing two ballot questions, is that the money that, that ta as taxes are, are, are rising, that money's going e everywhere else in the state. So when you go to another part of the state, especially an area where property values are not rising, make sure they thank you because you're paying for their education. And meanwhile, our formulas have not been updated in some cases in decades. 20% uh, differential for children in poverty or English language learners. Ladies and gentlemen, the research is really clear. It's two to three times more expensive to educate a child who lives in poverty or who has English as a second language, and it's even at least that for children with, with disabilities. And the reality is our formulas don't reflect that. So again, the system would be great 
if all the formulas were updated correctly, and we could still deal with DOC recapture issues, but they're not even dealing with that. You know, we're, we're getting close to our Q&A time, and I definitely want to leave enough time for that. I feel like there are so many other questions we could, <laughs> yeah. we could touch on, but I do want to <laughs> note something and ask you to comment on. When, when I started looking at the panelists on here and started researching a little bit, I realized very quickly they are all Hispanic or Latino. I'm not sure which term you identify with. And you know, our, our, <laughs> our, our friends at, I don't have to tell you that. Um, our friends at KRA this week pointed out that not only are you five Latino, but all the superintendents for the eight largest school districts in the state are Latino as well. Knowing what we know about the demographics of our, of our schools and the future of our state, you know, do you see that as a, as a benefit for your students? And, and in what way, is it a language thing, a cultural thing? Where do you see this as a, as a win for your students? Well, I, I'll just say, for me, uh, I'm humbled, frankly, and blessed that I, you know that I get to be superintendent in San Antonio. Uh, what I find, which is very touching for me, is that you know the families uh, will come and want to take pictures, and they'll want to, and especially with the younger children, um, they really go out of their way for me to just talk to them, and and I think also what resonates in my district is the fact that I was born in Mexico. I'm the oldest of 12 children, 10 of us still alive. I'm the first in my family to graduate from high school, to go to college. And so for many families, that just resonates with them. Um, and frankly, coming here to Texas, uh, I do feel a, a sense of responsibility because I look at our state, which is becoming majority Latino, especially when you look at our children. Um, and frankly, I see two states of Texas. I see an educated state and I see an undereducated state. And I feel that, I feel frankly, I feel for that, for our families, because it's our children, children that are Latino, children that are African-American, children that are under, you know, that live in poverty, they're undereducated. And you see it, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, look at our college rates. Look how many of our children graduate from college. Look how many go to the community college and what their graduation rates are. And that's our future, that's our future. And for me, and I really believe Texas is gonna represent the demographics of the country. So I think we have to get it right and I think, and I feel that burden, but I also feel that honor of trying to do that in San Antonio. I would say um, the, the good news is there were Latinos. The bad news is there's no Latinas up here. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a long way to go on that. Uh, and, and, and like Pedro, my, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Mexico. My father brought us to the greatest country in the world so we could get an education. And my parents had 22 grandkids. Two are special needs, 10%, so they're not going to graduate from college. 16 have graduated from college. The other four went to college, and my two boys went to Harvard and Princeton. That's one, one generation removed. An education can break that. And the other thing that separates us is that I'm the only true Latino. I'm the one that can grow a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these guys. No kidding. No, no, no. So they're fakes. I would have checked There's special drugs now that they get for doing that stuff. I, I don't know how you follow that yeah, up. Uh, I'll pass. I, 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 I do think it's, uh, in, in terms, I think, what Pedro and, and Dr. Nojosa were, were alluding to was the fact that we, we do uh, have similar names and you know, family backgrounds. A lot of the kids were educated, so that is important. It, it is a, an exciting time to have. Latino superintendents, but, but most importantly, I think we've all also risen from poverty. In my situation, uh, my, my parents are the first ones to go to college, were school teachers and, and uh, divorced, single family, so it was not you know, an easy place to grow up, and uh, I'm proud that we can show our kids that you are right, education is the key, able to go to the University of Texas Law School and 
live all over the world and now be a superintendent, I just hope that all of our kids, irrespective of their race, aspire for you know more in their lives by seeing that we can pull ourselves up through education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ditto to what everybody has said. Uh, you know, my, my parents were actually born in the United States. I was born in, in Tucson, Arizona, and my parents uh, only spoke Spanish to my brother and I, so I'm an English language learner. Uh, and the reason for that is that they didn't want us to not be able to communicate with our family who only spoke Spanish, but they trusted the public schools would teach us English and not teach us English at the expense of Spanish, but we would be bilingual. Uh, and I think that's really important that when I'm able to share that story in whatever community I am, it's resonated. You know, and I would hope that we've all been, and I know that we've all been selected for our positions, not necessarily because we're Latinos, but because we have some capabilities to do the job. And I know that in my previous district, which was the majority Asian, Chinese uh, families, even when I spoke of the Chinese community, they resonated with our story. It's, it's an American story. Uh, but I think that Texas, uh, much more than any state in the union, uh, is, is the harbinger of America. As Texas goes, so goes America very quickly. And you know, by the way, Latinos, right? We're like American Express. We're everywhere. <laughs> but like American Express, we're not always accepted everywhere. <laughs> There's a whole lot of dropping the mic going yeah. on up here. <laughs> Dr. Cruz, I'll end with you. Oh, absolutely, again, with what my colleagues are saying. Um, I just think having those experiences that our kids are experiencing today and just having those similar experiences going through the public school system um, back when you know there was segregation and then desegregation coming in and being as a teacher under desegregation is when I actually started my career sort of understanding those experiences there's um, you can actually relate and then you can actually talk about that well we can also talk to parents in a language they understand I think that's also important because many times um, some parents will think maybe we have forgotten uh, our background or you, you've forgotten where you've come from and I know with all of us, uh, we really do respect our heritage, and we want others to know about it as well, particularly our kids in school today, so that they're proud of who they are, and they're proud of their background and their experiences. Great, well, we are gonna open it up to Q&A. We've got our two mics here. Uh, in order to get as many of, of you folks in line as possible, please, let's be quick with our questions, and uh, maybe we can have one or two folks up here answer them, so if you've got someone that you specifically want to answer a question, let us know. Go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Eileen. I'm from the University of Texas San, San Antonio, and I'm from El Paso, so I was in Franklin High School there. All right. um, cool. So, I don't mean to bring the mood down, but you recently let go of Carla Gasway when she refused to switch schools, which personally I thought it was unfair since she has so much potential, she has so much to offer to the school. Um, Texas is ranked 43 out of 50 for education. That's awful. What are your plans to better education so that when high school kids leave and go to college, they succeed and not fail? That's for me, I guess. That was, that was a local issue. I'm not gonna, it was about a principal that uh, had been in the district about 30 years and I wanted to reassign to one of our poorest schools and she chose not to go to the poorest side of town. I made that a absolute for all of our principals. We're gonna spread our talent around. We're not gonna all hoard at the wealthier schools. And we're gonna change urban cores. We have to get our best talent across the whole city. She chose not to go, so she retired, and we thanked her for her career, but that's the way we're gonna do it in El Paso. Now, with regards to what we're doing, I, sh I shared with you earlier, we are doing project-based learning and trying to do GT education at all of our schools, irrespective of the zip code. 
been committed to that. And you can go to El Paso now. You, you lived in Franklin, the west side. They've always had a dynamic education, much more than they have across the city. We're taking that education across all of the city and along the border. And that's the reason I asked that principal from Franklin to go. She chose not to. So we're going to put our money on the educators that, that choose to spread a holistic education across the whole city to make sure we not only have equity, but the best education possible based on all the innovation that's available for our kids. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, my name's Steve Kelder. I'm working at UT. And I'm an advocate for child health. And uh, I've worked in all of your school districts with regard to children's physical activity, <coughs> uh, school food and nutrition programs. So I just want to find out what your opinions are. There, there's, there's pressure to, to save costs, I think. And, and many times school districts choose to, to take uh, food vendor contracts that, that might be uh, compromising a little bit on the quality of the food. And there's also school class time pressure with regard to time given to physical activity, which is, is one of the things in a social and emotional way of thinking might be one of those things that's really fun for some kids. And if you remove it, then so just just thoughts about this. It's, it's, it's related to education very clearly, but uh, where, where are you guys at on these things? Let me start very quickly and briefly to say that when, when I came back, the board helped develop six goals that they wanted me to work on that we collectively came up together. Five of them were heavily, heavily, heavily on achievement and assessment and all this. And finally, they said, wait a minute, what are we doing? Uh, we've got to take care of the whole child. So the sixth goal is that every student be involved in some co-curricular, extracurricular activity from robotics to whatever uh, athletic performance. And we're also, they also unanimously, my board doesn't do a lot of things unanimously, but they, had, they, they adopted social-emotional learning. We're going to mm -hmm. follow Austin's done an excellent job on that mm -hmm. in Cleveland. And we're going to follow that path over the next year. We're up for a very uh, robust planning grant to make that happen. We get it. That's important. And our board and our communities realize that. I'll say that we believe that uh, very much in social-emotional <laughs> learning. But I do think that also uh, contributes to learning when a student is actually actively engaged. So actually, you can have physical activity during the school day when it's certainly with physical education and recess time that we're looking at uh, expanding and extending that time. But also just while you're also doing language arts and math instruction, you're actually up physically involved, you know, just engaged in the learning. That has to happen throughout the day. I don't think there's any set time. I think even on work schedules, many times we need to get up and just walk around. Well, a student who is 7 or 16 or 18 needs to do that also. Just being in a desk, sitting in a desk for eight hours straight or seven hours, that's not learning. It looks like a very antiquated model of learning, but it is not even at that. So I just think, and um, truly respect with what you said, and I just think it's essential that students are actually physically engaged, and they're also, that's throughout the entire school day in, in all lessons. Well, we're gonna take a question from the top, and then I'll come back to you, sir. Go ahead. Hi, my name's Chris Woolen. I'm a Master's of Public Affairs student here at the LBJ School at UT. Um, I wanted to uh, basically get your reactions to the recent Houston Chronicle report regarding uh, TEA benchmarking about special education and, and what we need to do to do better for our students to make sure they're getting the services that they need to succeed. Anyone else? So, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, because um, I, I said it just earlier with the reporter. I mean, <coughs> so there shouldn't be a benchmark. I mean, to me, that's really the wrong way to approach special ed. It's not about a percentage. Um, to me, the one thing that I, that I do ask is that we get, again, more sophisticated about looking at special ed. So, for example, we have children with severe disabilities. They're sometimes in self-contained classrooms. Um, those, again, it's unethical for us not to provide those services to those children immediately from day one because we can, children that are autistic, children that, that you know, challenges like that. 
Then we have children who are learning disabled. And for example, in our district, we're having, uh, we have a large population of children that have dyslexia. And we're getting very, very focused on making sure we're identifying them early because uh, we found that children, we weren't identifying them early. And so for us, I don't see it as a percentage. I see it more as let's make sure that we're looking at the children that we have. And then of course you have children that are learning disabled. And for that, again, you know, we gotta look at uh, you know, RTI uh, processes to make sure that you know, this is our process, ladies and gentlemen, where we look at children who are struggling academically and we're looking at interventions. And then in some cases, they do need to be tested for special ed. In other cases, again, we just need to have stronger instruction. So for me, it's about focusing on the processes but not on the number because whether you say 8.5% or 13% of the national average, those are numbers. That, that doesn't mean anything unless we talk about the children themselves. I, I would just follow up on that as well, and I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, with, this is my second week on the job. Within the first day of get, coming on board, I met with our special education department. Actually, right after this story had come out, we had already scheduled uh, an, an understanding. I want to understand what are we doing in Houston. And I think it's really important to understand that you have objective and subjective categories around special education. Objective is if you have a student that's blind or a student that has a, a physical disability which, which requires some assistance. Pretty objective, it is what it is. But then the subjectivity is where we have some real challenges. And while I think students should get as much support as they need in the least restrictive environment, and the least restrictive environment will always be the general education classroom where they have the ability to have content level knowledge, content level uh, uh, instruction. They have the ability to interact with other students, their peer groups. And the reason I make a point of that is I have also in my career seen many times where there is a disproportionate identification of children of color, specifically, specifically African American boys who are identified as emotionally disturbed and then put into a self-contained classroom. It's the new Jim Crow, because you're taking those kids out of the general education classroom because they're yep. not behaving. Well, given, given the, the schedule that I followed for a middle school student, I wouldn't behave either. <laughs> so is it really the student or is it the system that we put students into? So, you know, the story, I think, accomplished something that I think is really important. It sparked a conversation. But in terms of being definitive around what is happening around special education, I could find you horror stories all day long and I could find you success stories all day long. What we need to be talking about is how are we creating environments for students to be successful. And I will tell you, in our school district, I've been very impressed with the work that's been done to build capacity of the general education teacher to provide those wraparound services and differentiation. So it sparked a conversation, which I think is a good thing. We'll come back to you, sir. My name is Paul Colbert. I know a number of you up there. I uh, was the budget chair of education for a long time. Each of you talked about the significant additional needs of educating kids from economic disadvantage, uh, kids who are English language learners. We give you 20% more for economically disadvantaged kids. We only give you 10% more actually for English language learners. Um, you've talked about the difficulty of attracting uh, teachers into those inner city schools. We have a cost of education index that in theory is supposed to recognize both your general market and the cost of, of getting people <laughs> particularly into those inner city urban schools. Do you have a message for the folks here to a legislature that has funded, number one, those weights at those very low levels when every study we've ever done said it takes at least 40% more in each category, and if the kid is both, it's the compounding effect of those two, and to a legislature that last year almost successfully passed legislation doing away with the cost of education index. Is there a message that you have to the folks out here to communicate in terms of what they need to do to make sure that instead of making the system worse, we actually try to make it better? 
Yeah, so I'm going to just come out flat out and say I love you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, my message would be, look, you can, you can invest now or you will definitely pay 14 times more later when you're incarcerating young adults and adults. That, that really is what's going to set us apart. And until we start thinking about the investment, let me give you an example. We, we try to tier our schools so that we're, we, from, a, from an equity perspective, we're allocating even our meager resources to the schools that have most need. Even doing that and taking into account all of the challenges that some of our communities have, there are schools that don't have full-time nurses. There are schools that don't have full-time instructional support personnel. There are schools that don't have a full-time uh, clerk. I mean, we, we, are, we are taking a penny and cutting in four different pieces, and it's just not enough. So not to mention that we want, and I hear this all the time, we want the best and brightest in education. Really? Then why don't you pay them a competitive salary? Because you can't keep the best and brightest. Coming out, of our, coming out of our university systems, and I don't think that a teacher should take a, power vo a, a vow of poverty to be able to do God's work, which is teaching kids. So, you know, there's this disconnect between what we say and what we think we want, and yet what we're able to write or willing to write a check for. Two, but, go ahead, Mike. Two things I want to say real quick. First of all, there are more English language learners in Dallas ISD than there are in the entire district of San Antonio entire district of El Paso and almost as many as the entire district of Austin. And then they want to come up with a simple solution to complex problems, whether it's school funding or whether it's this A through F. Yes. They're going to come up with this A through F and they're, they're mm -hmm. bent on keeping that. Let me tell you. So what do you do? Do you make it fair by including value added and growth and how much it gives? Or, or do you make it so complicated it's a black box no one can explain it or understand it? So that's where we're going, and, and so but if we, I just get people to understand it. You cannot have a simple answer to a complex issue. Folks, I'm very, very sorry, but we're out of time. I really apologize. Can we get a round of applause for our panelists? Yes.